Well, good to see everybody tonight. Take your Bibles out and let's jump back in to the book of Daniel. Looking tonight at chapter 7, Animal House. Uh, begin reading with me in verse 1 and we're going to divide chapter 7 up into two, maybe even three separate lessons. So uh, let's read down through verse 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions on his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong, it had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold... In this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. A generation ago, a Bible teacher by the name of Ray Stedman commented on world affairs by saying, All voices agree together, secular and sacred alike, that we're coming to an unprecedented time of trouble in the world. And we shall never again see anything that could be regarded as normal times. You feel like we're there? Strange things are happening today. There's a lot of unrest in the world. It seems like at any given time, there are pockets of warfare that are about to break out in the world, particularly the Middle East. Now, what's going to happen in the world? During the Cold War, of course, there was the fear that somebody was going to push a button and we would all simply be annihilated, perhaps even in an instant. But is that really going to happen? Does anybody really have a clue as to how things are going to wrap up on the earth? Well, the answer to that is yes, we can know. Now, we won't know all the fine details, but in Daniel 7, God does, in fact, give us the broad outline of what we can expect. 
According to Dr. John Walvoord, who was the president at one time of Dallas Theological Seminary, he said the seventh chapter of Daniel provides the most comprehensive and detailed prophecy of future events that you will find anywhere in the Old Testament. Among some of the scribes in ancient times, Daniel chapter 7 was considered as perhaps the single most important chapter in the Bible dealing with future events. Now folks, there's some introductory thoughts that I want to give you as we launch into this chapter and and I've provided them for you there on your sermon notes page. We need to remember that the book of Daniel is essentially divided into two halves. The first half, chapters 1 through 6, are largely historical narrative. Historical narrative, just like it suggests, just records historical events. Like you would read in First or Second Samuel, for instance. Historical narrative. Just straightforward. Now, of course, we did see that there's some apocalyptic type things within that historical narrative. But for the most part, the first six chapters of Daniel are historical narrative, whereas uh, chapters 7 through 12 are prophetic for the most part. Now, we need to understand that all 12 chapters considered together are not perfectly chronological. Uh, Actually, the events in Daniel 1 through 6 are chronological in their own way. And events in chapters 7 through 12 are chronological in their own way. But when we look at the book as a whole, we need to understand that chapters 7 through 12 gives us visions that also took place during the time of chapters 1 through 6. And so what that largely means is you can take chapters 1 through 6... And you can lay chapters 7 through 12 on top of them because 7 through 12 is going to record for us in a different way, more of an apocalyptic way, many of the same events that we've already read about in chapters 1 through 6. And so in many ways you can lay the second half of the book right on top of the first half of the book. Now, let me give you an illustration. When we come to chapter 7, we're told in verse 1 that this vision of Daniel took place in the first year of Belshazzar. But remember the historical section of Daniel 1 through 6 finished Belshazzar off at the end of chapter 5 when Darius the Mede conquered and destroyed him. And so obviously the vision of Daniel 7 took place chronologically between Daniel 4 and 5. I think you get the point. Now chapter 7 through 12 is made up of four visions that cover a span of approximately 22 years in Daniel's life. And I guess one of the benefits that we do have of studying chapter 7 is for the most part, conservative scholars are agreed what the different beasts stand for, the different kingdoms, what it stands for. There's a large degree of agreement among scholars 
about the contents of this book. But the first vision is going to be in chapter 7, the second vision in chapter 8, the third vision in chapter 9, and the fourth vision in chapter 10. Now chapters 1 to 7 reveal the destiny of the nations of the world, and to a large extent chapters 8 to 12 reveal the destiny of Israel. And so in chapter 8, Daniel reverts back to the Hebrew, whereas in chapters 2 to 7, he's been writing in the Aramaic. Now, it's widely recognized that Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 go together. Daniel 7 is going to turn out to be the more detailed and the more comprehensive of the two, But nonetheless, the two chapters deal with the same subject matter. Now, you'll remember that dream of Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 2 that was interpreted by Daniel. Remember what that dream was. It was a dream of a statue and the head of gold was revealed to Daniel as being none other than the Babylonian kingdom itself. And then there were the chest and the arms of of silver. That's the Medo-Persian kingdom. Then the belly and thighs were of bronze, the kingdom of Greece. And then the legs of iron and its feet and ten toes of iron mixed with clay. That would be Rome. Now the vision of Daniel uh, in chapter 7 is interpreted by an angel. Now we're going to see that the vision has the four beasts, uh, each of which corresponds to one of the metals in chapter 2. You with me? Again, the gold, the silver, the bronze. In chapter 7, the metals are recorded though not as metals, but different creatures. Okay? Somebody says, then why two? Why do we have this recorded twice? Now scholars comment on this, that perhaps it's because Nebuchadnezzar saw the kingdoms of the world from man's standpoint of view. And so he saw a statue made out of magnificent metal, some of them precious metals. And in chapter 3, he ended up making an idol out of this image. That's the way man is. He looks at history from man's point of view and he's in awe of what he sees. Man worships the work of man's hands and even places his own works on a pedestal and makes an idol out of them. But in chapter 7 we see things related not from man's point of view but from God's point of view. And so from God's point of view, the kingdoms of man are like ferocious beasts that fight and devour one another, and they're anything but glorious. It's a reminder of what God says in Isaiah 55, where He says, Seek the Lord while He may be found, and and we're told that His ways are higher than our, our ways and His thoughts than our thoughts, says the Lord. So chapter 2 is the kingdoms of the world viewed from man's perspective. Chapter 7 is the same kingdoms viewed from God's perspective. You with me? Okay. 
first thing I want you to notice again, the setting of Daniel's vision. We're told in verse 1, In the first year Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my visions by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. Now the year is designated as the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, and that would have been 553 B.C. Now look at what Daniel saw. It's kind of like watching a sci-fi movie, isn't it? You stay up late on Friday night and watch a sci-fi thriller, uh, The Dragon That Ate Manhattan. You know, that's kind of like what, what you think of here, right? Now, we're introduced, first of all, here to the four winds of heaven. The number four is often a number of the world. For example, we talk about the four corners of the world. We talk about four seasons and so forth. Now some suggest that what we need to see behind the four winds is demonic forces in high places. Ephesians 6, we battle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers in high places. So spiritual warfare, four winds, things that affect what goes on on the earth. Others look at it from the standpoint of not demonic powers, but rather God's activity in heaven. Things in heaven determining what takes place on the earth. And that's precisely what we see here. Four winds striving and stirring up the great sea. Now... The next image here, not only the four winds, but the great sea. In the Bible, there is usually a literal and a figurative meaning to the great sea. The literal would be uh, the, the four seas mentioned in the Bible, the Sea of Galilee, the Red Sea, the Dead Sea, and the Great Sea. The Mediterranean was referred to as the Great Sea, and it is in that area of the world that the major prophecies of the Bible refer to. When you read about end time events in the Bible, the focus is always on that part of the world. And on Israel in particular. And how the nations of the world around Israel will relate to her in the end times. Then sometimes in the Bible, the great sea is referred to in a figurative way, like the great sea of humanity. You can write down Isaiah 17, 12 to 13, and Revelation 13, 1 and 11, and 17, 1 and 15. Again, that would be Isaiah 17, 12 to 13, and Revelation 13, verses 1 and 11, and Revelation 17, and verses 1 and 15. But talking about the great sea of humanity. And then we see an image here of four great beasts. And this is some animal house. They're not like any animals we would see in a zoo. Now, animals were sometimes used in the Bible to symbolize kingdoms, and that's what's going on here. Now, folks, even today we do some of that, don't we? For instance, Great Britain. What, what's the 
animal image behind Great Britain? A lion. What's the animal image behind the United States? The eagle. So we do some of that today as well. Uh, so it's not unusual to think of different kingdoms or nations uh, being compared to some animal. Well, secondly, I want you to notice beginning in verse 4, the sequence of the kingdoms in Daniel's vision. As Daniel observed what was happening, he saw these four beasts coming up out of the sea and they were vying for power and authority. Now, the first was a lion with wings. That's no doubt Babylon. Chapter 2, Babylon was the head of gold. The national symbol of Babylon happened to be a lion with wings on its back. Archaeologists have dug up figurines outside of the ancient palaces in Babylon of lions with wings on their back. It was a symbol of both strength, the lion, the king of the beast, and speed symbolized by the wings. The prophet Jeremiah uses both the lion and the eagle to refer to Babylon. That would be Jeremiah 49, verses 19 to 22. Jeremiah 49, 19 to 22. Babylon being referred to as, as both a lion and an eagle. Now I want you to notice the wings were plucked off and it stood. That corresponds so well to what happened. Nebuchadnezzar's long reign began with a career of rapid conquest. Uh, it began with the battle of Carchemish in 605 BC in which Nebuchadnezzar defeated Egypt. And then in a series of swift campaigns he conquered all of Syria, Palestine, and he invaded Egypt and he took ancient Tyre. And then he turned his attention to domestic affairs. Babylon diminished in its appetite to speed across the earth, conquering nations, and Nebuchadnezzar became satisfied with the kingdom that he had built. You'll remember in chapter 4, in a moment of pride, uh, he credited all of Babylon's successes to his own power and his own might. And God took the kingdom from him until he humbled himself before God. Well, next is the bear in verse 5. Verse 5 says, Behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Scholars pretty well agree. Again, we, we have the benefit that scholars are agreed on, on the images in this chapter. That this is the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, the bear is a very fitting symbol for this empire. They were not as swift as Babylon. And that's how a bear is. It goes by brute force and size. It's said that when Xerxes marched against Greece... He took two and a half million troops with him. It said that his army looked more like a migration of people rather than an army. It was such a mass of people. Bears also have appetites that are never satisfied. The Medo-Persian Empire was not satisfied until it reached all the way from the Indus River in the east to the Aegean Sea in the west. We're told that it was raised up on one side. 
Persia became the dominant side in this kingdom. So much so, in fact, that they simply began to refer to it as the Persian Empire. By the time of the end of the book of Daniel, the Medes were about gone. Well, we're also told that it had three ribs in its mouth. Historians tell us that the Persian Empire conquered Babylon in 539 B.C., Lydia in 546 B.C., and Egypt in 536. 25 B.C. And yet it was still told to arise and devour much flesh. Herodotus counted and described no less than 56 nations enlisted by Xerxes for his march against Greece. They devoured nations. Now folks, you can see the great detail in this prophecy. And that ought to say to us, if the prophecy that has already been fulfilled in great detail was was done so in that manner, then prophecies yet to happen, how are they going to be fulfilled? They're going to be fulfilled literally and in great detail also. Now the third kingdom was symbolized by a leopard with four wings on its back in verse 6. Here again, scholars are pretty well in agreement that this stands for Greece. The leopard springs on its prey with great swiftness. And to emphasize that, we have not only two wings, but what? Four wings. That's how Alexander the Great was. He leaped across the world. He conquered the world with amazing brilliance and speed. In fact, the military strategy known as Blitzkrieg dates back to Alexander. He's the one credited with the beginning of that military style where you overwhelm your enemies with just great speed. He's said to be a military genius. With 35,000 soldiers, he conquered a Persian army of between two and 300,000 troops. Nothing short of miraculous. But I want you to notice at the end of verse 6, we are reminded that God is the one who gave him his dominion. Yes, he was a military genius. Yes, his kingdom conquered other nations with great speed. But it's God who gave him success. Just like we saw earlier that it was God that allowed Nebuchadnezzar to go in and overrun Judah to begin with. Now, it's said that when Alexander the Great had conquered everything there was to conquer, he wept, sat down and wept because there were no more challenges And in in 323 B.C., at the height of his success, Alexander the Great died, 32 years of age, died in a drunken stupor. And I want you to notice something about this leopard. How many heads did it have? Four heads. Well, guess what happened when Alexander the Great died? His kingdom was divided among who? Four of his generals. Cassander took Macedon and Greece... Lysimachus took Asia Minor and Thrace. Seleucus took Syria, Upper Asia, Babylon, and the East. 
And Ptolemy took Egypt, Palestine, and Arabia. And then in verses 7 and 8, we're introduced to a fourth kingdom. It says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron uh, teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped, stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So terrible in its uh, appearance was it that we're not even given an animal description here. It's like it was so horrible, Daniel had never seen anything like it, he had nothing to compare it to. Back in chapter 2, verse 40, it says, There shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. The Roman Empire far outlasted all the others. Babylon lasted 70 years. Persia lasted 200 years. Greece lasted 180 years. But then we come to the Roman Empire by 266 B.C. It had subjugated the entire Italian peninsula. In 264 it began its wars with rival Carthage. Hannibal was defeated in 202, and then it conquered Spain. Greece was absorbed as well as all of uh, Macedonia, and then it started east. Bithynia came under Roman control, then also Syria, Palestine, Gaul, and Egypt all came under Roman control. By A.D. 84, Britain was subdued and settled. Now folks, that's only part of the picture. You can look at a good atlas and see that Rome pretty well conquered the then known world at the time. And they were known to be ruthless. Like a beast with iron teeth, they devoured and crushed their enemies. We need to remember that it was the Roman Empire that crucified Jesus, that crucified Simon Peter, that beheaded Paul, that burned Christians, and exiled John to the Isle of Patmos. It was a ruthless empire. The eastern division of the Roman Empire continued all the way down to 1453 A.D. Remember the two legs. There was the eastern and western division of the Roman Empire, which fits in perfectly with the image of the statue back in Daniel 2. Divided between east and west. The eastern part of the empire continued down to 1453 A.D. Now it's interesting as we covered in chapter 2 that no world empire has replaced the Roman Empire. In fact, it's said that remnants of the Roman Empire continue in western civilization. The culture in Western civilization has its roots in the Roman Empire. 
And so in the statue in Daniel chapter 2, we're somewhere down in, in the, the legs and the feet. We're still in there. And just like chapter 2 says that there are ten toes, chapter 7 says there are ten horns. Now this is where scholars pretty well agree that Daniel 7 begins at this point to take us into the future from our vantage point. Bible scholars believe that in the end we're going to see something that can be sort of compared to a revived Roman Empire. The European nations coming together in a federation, which they're already doing. Now the numbers are always changing. You know, they started with what, seven or eight, and then they jumped up to nine, and then there's eleven and twelve, and it's always in a little bit of flux. We don't know exactly where that's going to end, but uh, already the European nations have sort of grouped together. Long ago, Winston Churchill spoke of a United States of Europe. Uh, we see the common market, common currency. Uh, chapter 7 says there'll be ten horns. Horns stand for power or governments. And so evidently in the end there's going to be a confederation of ten leaders who will be on the world scene. And Daniel said while he was contemplating all of this, another horn, a little horn, came up among them and three of the first horns were uprooted. This one horn, a picture of the Antichrist, becomes the dominant leader. And this horn has eyes standing for wisdom or insight and a mouth boasting. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So this little horn that comes up and deceives the world. Now what we see here in Daniel 7 is 
reminiscent of what we also see in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation chapter 13, I want you to listen to verse 1. John says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Again, scholars believe he's talking here about the sea of humanity. A beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its head. Ten horns, seven heads. Rome is a city built on seven mountains. You look over at Revelation chapter 17 and verse 9. And verse 9 there says, This calls for a mind with wisdom, the seven heads or seven mountains on which the woman is seated. And then down in verse 12 it says, And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. And then in 14 it says, in, in, in verse 14 of chapter thir- uh, 17, he says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called chosen and faithful. And you look back again at chapter 13 of Revelation and verse 2. And it says, And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne with great authority. And so the beast included all of the most horrible characteristics of each one of the beasts. In Daniel chapter 7. And so you see here how Daniel 7. In Revelation 13 likewise. Kind of lay on top of one another. Well what are some lessons we learn from chapter 7? First of all here in chapter 7. We learn that God teaches us. The progress of human history. Now, instead of the progress or the evolution of human history, we could really speak in terms of the devolution of human history. Mankind and the kingdoms of this world don't get better and better and more righteous and more righteous. What happens on the face of the earth over time? Men get more and more wicked until the end. Human history is going to continue to get worse and worse until we see history on this earth climaxing, the evil of it climaxing with the time of the Antichrist. Now don't try to figure out who the Antichrist is because if I'm right in my eschatology and I hope that I am that we're raptured out of here first, We're not going to be around when the Antichrist is revealed. If you're around when the Antichrist is revealed, it means that you've been left behind. But until that time, history is going to get worse and worse, not better and better. That's lesson number one from Daniel 7. 
Lesson number two, God teaches us the preservation of human history. I mentioned earlier how people used to think that somebody was going to push a button and all of humanity was going to be wiped out. We were going to obliterate ourselves. Well, folks, it's not going to happen that way. Because man is still around when the fifth kingdom that we'll, we'll look at later on in this chapter next week and week after next, when the messianic kingdom comes, when Jesus comes and his kingdom crushes the kingdoms of this world, guess what? This world and the kingdoms of this world are still here. We've not obliterated ourselves. So the preservation of human history. And a third lesson, God teaches us the purpose of human history. Why does God allow all this? God is simply allowing us to see the uselessness and the vanity in the way that we do things. The uselessness and the vanity in the way that we do things. You know, we could close tonight's lesson by saying if Jesus doesn't come and set things straight, there is no hope for man. Man doesn't have solutions for the kingdoms of this world. We're not going to get it right. As I say, it's going to get worse and worse and human solutions in the end are going to prove to be vain. And we're going to see that man's purpose all along has been to serve and worship and glorify God. So the purpose of human history, the preservation of human history, and the progress of human history. Now, that's only the first eight verses of chapter 7. I just feel like when we get into this last half of Daniel, we need to maybe take it a little bit slower at points. Okay, any questions or comments? Any questions or comments? I'm going to let George answer them for you, okay? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Again, there, there's, the, there's the literal and the figurative. Sometimes the Bible, when it talks about the sea, it's referring to the Mediterranean. Other times it's talking about the sea of humanity. And, and yes, the, uh, the Gentile sea of humanity, that we, like we see there in Revelation 13. Yes. 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 The fiscal cliff and how we print all this money and we give away all this stuff and we can't afford it. Or our government won't they won't cut the spending and raise the taxes, they're just playing games, but it's just futility. It's like human futility. Yep. And that and that continues and gets worse all the way up until the end. Man thinks he's so smart and if we have proved proven anything, it's that we don't have the ability to solve most of our worst problems.
Mm -hmm. A woman rides the beast. Okay. Hmm. Okay. So you have to just read it with an open mind. You know, I'm not saying he's right, he's wrong. I'm just saying it's interesting. It will blow your mind regarding eschatology. Okay. Yes, because that's going to be the only answer to our mess. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Uh-huh. There can be. Uh, largely, it's, it's believed that uh, it will be those who have never heard and never had the opportunity thus far. And on top of that, it will be Jews, the 144,000 of Revelation 7 that the rest who are left behind, who just know the gospel and have ignored it, they will be among those who believe the lie of the Antichrist. And in fact, we will see in the book of Revelation, as all the tribulation is breaking out on the, on the face of the earth, you would think that would cause people to want to get right with God. But as you, read, as you read to the end of chapter 9 of Revelation, men become more stubborn and steadfast in their hatred of God and they continue in all of their wickedness. And so, you know, I, I, I realize it's some degree of speculation, but, but that would be those who have just ignored and, and haven't responded now, no, they won't have a second chance. Those who are saved are those who will hear the gospel for the first time along with those among the Jews who are saved. Yes, yes. And in, in, in the Olivet Discourse there, it's believed that who he is referring to specifically there is the Jews, the, the natural branch that is being grafted back in, that uh, uh, the days are cut short for their sake. Uh, but again, uh, there, we're going to see a big majority of people who go with the Antichrist and believe the lie. And so I don't think there's a second chance for them. And, and see, this is why, too, I don't believe that the, the amillennialists and the post-trib, premillennialists and all that say that the gospel has to be taken to the whole globe Jesus said this gospel must be preached to the ends of the earth before the end. And so some will say today, 
because we have not, there's still thousands of unreached people groups out there that the rapture can't occur yet. But I think that's a misreading because during the tribulation, you're, you're going to see the 144,000 become witnesses. Then you have the two witnesses of Revelation 11. And then you even have angels flying in heaven proclaiming the gospel. And so the gospel will be carried to the ends of the earth in the time of the tribulation. So I don't think anything prevents Jesus from coming back for his church tonight. Those on the earth. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you have the 144,000, the two witnesses, and the angels. I think there's three of them in specific, three of them specifically that are sent out proclaiming the gospel to those on the earth in the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's in chapter. I want to say that it's somewhere between chapter 9 and 14. The, the angels flying about preaching the gospel. Now the 144,000 is in chapter 7. And then the two witnesses are in chapter 11. So, and there's been reference in the Bible about these uh, angels taking on human form. Right. No, it, it talks about they're, they're, they're flying above the earth, preaching the gospel. It seemed like a, what we did good with this too would be like a Matthew 24, 29, and then this Luke uh, 21, 25, about the things about the coming of the Lord there. Right. Uh, it talks about that thing you're talking about. It says, uh, uh, distress of nations with perplexity, sea and the waves roaring. You know, it seemed to be in line with that sea that you're right. The, the raging sea of humanity, yes. Okay. Well, take your prayer guides out. That's right. Left. How much did he leave? He left it all.